I'm Nareet Ben, and this is Life Deconstructed. By age 29, Daphne Bravo had climbed quickly through the executive ranks at Macy's, promoted eight times in nine years, and managing $300 million in annual retail sales. On paper, she was a major success straight out of business school. But at a physical and mental breaking point, she began what ended up being a dramatic overhaul of her life. I'm talking mental, physical, emotional change. Today, she's the founder and creator behind D. Lauren B. Paper Florals, unreal, gorgeous paper flower creation sold around the world. She also recently co-founded Moguls of Infinite Opportunity, a community of women created to elevate each other in their personal and professional lives. And side note, she's a mom of two. Full disclosure, Daphne and I have been friends for over 15 years, and I really wanted to have her on to start off these conversations because, bottom line, she's an inspiration to me. She was brave enough to make decisions many people shy away from and to really understand what went into it. And spoiler alert, none of it happened overnight or with the help of some self-help book. And her journey so far has touched on so many issues women face within themselves that I think are super relatable. So, hi, Daph. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for giving me the one hour a day that you set aside completely to yourself. Oh, I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. What does this hour that you normally have completely to yourself look like when you're not podcasting? <laughs> well, uh, so this morning, this hour in my morning, really, I like to reserve for my kind of mental download, my physical... Um, stretching. And I say that, uh, both in a, I say physical and I also mean in a spiritual sense. I, I really have to sit in order to accomplish everything that I do. I really have to sit with myself and, uh, do some meditating, do some yoga, really kind of listen to my body. So that's really what the key to my, all of my change really became was listening to my body. And so this one hour in the morning is the one time in my day that I get to be completely to myself, get to sit silently, get to listen to nobody's needs but my own. Um, and that as a mom of two and uh, somebody who runs two businesses at this point from my home, uh, it's, it's essential. It's essential to my success. It's essential to my well-being um, as a mother, as a, as a contributor to my community, and um, as as a person who likes to live life to its fullest, right? Our, our, our bodies and our minds need to be stretched every single day and need to be... Um, listen to. And that is really what this hour is reserved for. It doesn't have a specific structure, right? I've tried many different structures, the miracle morning, you know, the, the five things you must do every day. I've read all the books. Um, and And that can be really stressful too. I think, I mean, the, the notion that there's got, there's some like special formula that if you just follow this, your life is going to be magically you know, renewed. And if you don't fit into that formula that, you know, billionaires and everybody does, then you're kind of screwed. Absolutely. And, and I think that in a weird way, I, I definitely went on that quest to find what was, what worked for me, right? Um, whether it was yoga, meditation, um, following all the different formulas. And what I learned was that when I wake up in the morning, I just have to listen. And sometimes that takes the form of sitting. And sometimes that takes the form of never sitting because my body has so many things it needs to express at that moment. And sometimes that means going outside and sitting in the grass. Um, I try not to limit my mornings to any one specific thing other than 
listening to my body. So some mornings that means, yeah, some mornings that means getting out of bed and literally sitting in a different chair and sleeping again. Just, it, it, it's just listening and, and doing what I need to do. And it's incredible the things that come during that hour, whether it's realizations, words that won't get out of my mind. That's actually how Mio got its name. I literally was having a morning where I, I tried to do yoga. I was very unfocused. I decided to just sit and listen to some um, music. And um, the word moguls had been a, a word that had been thrown around a bit. And um, just the rest of it flowed out of me like water. And it was incredible how things like that happened to me often yeah. during that hour. Just Well, it's, I mean, first of all, I, th- I think that's amazing advice and really simple versus what we're normally fed, which is just to listen, to be quiet and listen. But I know that you have made a very long way from a morning routine that was all about <laughs> a massive Starbucks and the subway to where you're at now. So let's get into a little bit of, of how that evolution happened. So some context, you grow up in New Jersey, born to Cuban-American parents who arrived in the States each in the 60s and 70s, made a great life for themselves in medicine, two younger sisters, and you are always in the role of the one sort of taking care of stuff. Like, I mean, not for nothing, we called you Mama Daphne in college. Do you always remember yourself as being a sort of caretaker, as being the one giving? You know, I, I, I guess I'll say before my sisters came along, probably not. You know, I, I think that at first I was privileged and I was given a lot of attention. And I think that that, that allowed me to, to have a strong foundation so that when my sisters did come along and I did become a very much a caretaker and take on that role, I felt, I felt that that was important, right? I had been taken care of for so many, for eight years. I was eight years old when my sisters were born. So I think I took that role on with pride. And I think that I never, as I got older, I, I think the pride became a problem. It became, um, it got tangled in with self-worth. And, um, and I think that that's, that's where giving took a turn for me. Okay. There's a lot more to that. I think that we'll talk about in terms of how you figured that out, that actually giving there's, there's a bad side to it, that there's a sort of limit, but, but let's, let's go sort of piece by piece then, because at 17, you start NYU's business school, Stern, one of the top business schools in the country. And it's so typically American, we're at this kind of insanely young age, we're asked to make these big life choices and basically start carving out a path. So what even drew you? I mean, how'd you get to Stern? What drew you to business? Well, what's funny is that Stern kind of became an elimination uh, process that that brought me there. Uh, So I did not want initially to go to business school, Um, being the daughter of two immigrant parents who had found their success by really, you know, working hard and and putting in the time and and giving, you know, sacrificing things. I wanted to go to art school and that didn't feel very... um, didn't seem like it had a good future. And I totally understand that idea. And I totally now as a parent understand my parents, um, hesitation in supporting me on that journey. And then I kind of got into to Stern and I had applied with the intention of, wow, you know, being in New York would be incredible. I ended up going to Stern because art school wasn't an option. And the other schools that I wanted were just, less sexy than New York. So I figured if I was going to go to business school and do what I didn't really know that I wanted to do at that point, then New York was going to be the place, right? Yeah. That's not the worst backup, a good business in New York City. No, definitely not. (laughs) And so that, you know. But it's not what your heart was initially telling you to do. But I mean, who knows at 17 anyway? 
Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and you know what, I, that's one thing I've, I've always been is, is, you know, rational to a, to a fault. And that was, that was definitely a moment of the rational choices just to, yeah go to the best school that you got into. I mean, sure. And that's a point also. And as you mentioned, you know, your parents and how you grow up and what you think is, you know, the right path and what is accepted and what is, you know, the smart thing to do is very little, I think, of what your own intuition is necessarily and and mostly, you know, your environment and what you're being, what you're being told. Yeah, especially at that age, right? Like, like, like you mentioned before, it's it's such a young age to be asked to make these life changing decisions, and yet you carry the weight of those decisions and the consequences of the decisions for the rest of your life. Yeah, right. I think it might be better spent traveling for a year, but that's a whole other podcast and a whole, whole other another podcast. But agree, but agree. So we'll delay for now. Um, but so, okay, so you're in NYU, you graduate, you immediately get hired at Macy's. Um, and basically within nine years, you get promoted eight times. You're often the youngest person ever to hold your position mm-hmm. and you end up managing a team and $300 million a year in product. Yep. So, I mean, what exactly, what was your experience there like, at least in the beginning? What was it for you? So, I mean, at first it was kind of funny. I, I went directly from college to the executive training program, which was a really wonderful foundation and really, um, let's say polished my skills, my business skills, um, and really just turned me into something that was more presentable to, to the massive client base of Macy's. And within three, I want to say three to four months, I was kind of put out there in the field as an executive. So I started as a merchandising assistant. And, um, at first it really felt Macy's does a great job of training their executives by making them feel, um, you know, safe and, and, and well-supported. And there was a, you know, a, a breadth of resources. And if I wanted to be trained on something, all I had to do was ask. And I will say that as somebody who went from business school to, you know, a retail environment, I, I was a little nervous as to like, you know, I, I, I didn't know anything it, in retail. I did not work there in high school or anything like that. Um, so they did a great job in making me feel like I was in the right place and in making it very clear to me that I was going to be as successful as I wanted to be. And at that point I was hungry for success. I was hungry for what that felt like. And what I thought that looked like was a ton of hard work. So I was the girl that was willing to always stay late. I was the girl that was willing to always come in early. Um, I was the girl who, you know, when I was hourly was putting in so much overtime, you know, at such a young age for almost no reason. Like there were times when my boss would be like, wow, you got this done a week ahead of time. And so I, I, I really excelled in that environment and I gave them what they were asking for and more. And so they responded by giving me opportunity after opportunity. And I literally never turned down a promotion. There were some that I should have, that I wasn't ready for, but I absolutely never did. It was, it was my, my hunger at that point was, was exactly what they fed. It is great that you were at least in a place that I think is actually really rare and that very few of us experience, which is a a structure that really, you know, helps groom you and helps you figure out, you know, what different paths to success you have and, you know, can answer your question. So already, I mean, that's kind of a rare thing that I think you know, a lot of us, for the most part, we're just kind of thrown into our first, second, third jobs and, you know, figure it out. So, I mean, you're a buyer, you have this team under your management, you're really epitomizing what you described as your vision of success when you started out. At what point 
in these years did you start realizing maybe I'm not in the right place? So quite literally, my body stopped responding like a normal body. (laughs) My body just started to break down. And it started with, I never really had an issue with weight. I, you know, I had gone through the regular, when you get to college, you know, you gain the 15 pounds, 20 Mm -hmm. pounds, whatever. But after that, I realized that I had a problem. Maybe weight wasn't, wasn't the problem more. It was my relationship with food. It had become like an emotional crutch for me. And so that manifested itself in a lot of self-hate, right? So I would gain all this weight because I was unhappy, right? It started with, it started really with the, uh, the responses to my body of all of the unhappiness. So I start gaining all this weight. Then I go into these major weight loss or, or workout moments where I take two, three months and I, I get super passionate about some sort of diet. And I think we all do this, right? We yo-yo back yeah. and in different ideas, different theory. Oh, I'm keto today. Tomorrow I'm vegan. The next day I decide that I'm, you know, I, you know. I'm and each thing is like going to be the thing that changes your life and that makes you this whole right. new Instagram each, perfect person. Each, each one of them is going to rewire your body, right? Each one of them is going to rewire your brain. And the reality is that they are all great and they all work for somebody, but they all don't work for a lot of other people. So what happened to me was I got caught in this weird cycle. And listen, I'm the daughter of a doctor. I, I, I know, and I knew even doing all of these things that they were all band-aid solutions, right? None of them were addressing the problem. And I guess the big issue was that I, I didn't know what the problem was at first. So started by really physically manifesting. Then I started to I have an autoimmune condition that I developed when I was a very young girl, but had pretty much been under control and it started to be out of control. So I started developing cysts all over my body. And listen, I was working 14 hour days, you know, traveling all the time. And my life actually just became hard. I was really young in my twenties and I became physically hard. Um, And there were episodes of stress where I, it almost seemed I can imagine it would seem to others that I was, you know, very sick because I would just disappear for a week at a time. I would literally be bedridden from how in pain I physically was. And at times there wasn't a lot of explanation as to why. Um, And then my mind started to really be affected too. Eventually, you know, around the sixth, seventh year um, of being at Macy's, we actually my husband and I got affected by Hurricane Sandy and that was my tipping point. I, I mean, affected a brand new house, completely flooded. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that that was not, I think that was a real breaking point for me because I had felt like I was at the pinnacle of my success at that point. And so at that point, you know, my husband and I, I was in my early twenties. We had purchased this beautiful home on the water in Long Island. Uh, we had a boat, you know, multiple vehicles. I mean, we were just living a very lavish life. Checking all the, checking all the boxes. Right. In my mid twenties. And I just, I couldn't imagine a world in which my decisions that had brought me to that place would have been wrong. Right. Like on paper and in a societal, from a societal perspective, like, girl, count your blessings. Like right. what? You should be grateful. Like you, you feel don't a little sick. Mm, you yeah. feel a little sick. Oh, go take some Tylenol. Go take some Tylenol. Girl, you make enough money. Go drink that third martini. Right. Go. Yeah. And, and, and so- I just want to pause on like one thing you said, which was, you know, looking for reasons, because I think so many times, I mean, this has happened to me too. It obviously happened to you in a very extreme way where you really literally made yourself so sick. 
but that we have one something that's not right, that we feel is not right physically. And we go down this long list of looking what the reasons are from doctors to diets to vitamins. I mean, whatever. There's just like an endless list of things that doesn't include the the basics of weight is is what I'm doing in my life is my my lifestyle, not like, you know, how much am I doing yoga, but is my current choice in life actually the right one for me? Because normally that's just the hardest one to look at. That's the hardest one to change. But usually that is the right answer. I think that we all look outside of ourselves for too many answers that exist right within ourselves. And I think, you know, you asked me before what my hour in the morning is. And if I could sum it up, it's, you know, just going within, you know, and that's something that I have been told in so many different ways to do for my entire life, but I truly never understood it. And I truly don't think that the people that tried to tell me even understood what they were asking me to do either, because it's so hard and so rare. And you're absolutely right. You know, people are always looking for the external. What is the answer? Just give me the answer, whether it's what you're eating, how active you are and what kind of activity you're doing, what religion you have, what, what, you know, friends and circles or what, what job it's all supposed to make us feel right or better or fill a hole. And none of it does because you can be full in any circle, (laughs) with any friends, in any economic condition, in eating any foods, almost doing any sort of physical activity, almost, you know, there it's, it's, it's something within, it's something different. It's, it's a soulful listening and it looks different for everybody. And I think that's, that's hard to teach. Yeah. And it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's important to emphasize because I think like we were saying before, I mean, this notion that we're, you know, you read about people with life-changing things or all these self-help books or, you know, whatever it is. And there's a sort of feeling when we often hear about that, okay, someone just decided and, and, and poof, like, it's, it's not like you decided, okay, I've made myself sick, massive life change. And then within a week, you're a different person and, you know, in a different mental, physical, emotional place. It's, it's a, a long journey. Um, Absolutely. That's how it's supposed to be. I mean, it doesn't work any other way. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, it, Hurricane Sandy, I say it's my tipping point, but Hurricane Sandy happened in, in what, 11? No, 12. Yeah. You know, I didn't leave my job until 15. Wow. So, so let's just explain, <laughs> I mean, paint that picture. So you are super successful at Macy's managing a team, hundreds of million dollars in product, a buyer, you are working insane hours. You've made yourself already sick physically. I mean, your body is saying, hold on, like this is not, this is not working. I'm absolutely. And then your home gets flooded and destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. And and what do you do? You're still continuing for a few years. So as life would have it, I was going through an episode when Hurricane Sandy happened, right? I had taken a little bit of medical leave. Um, I was, I was having an issue, uh, And I was bedridden for the better part of a week. And we, my husband and I had this annual Halloween party and, you know, against everyone's best advice, they were like, do not host this party. You're ill. You're not, you know, you're, you're not well, like you, you need to rest. And I said, no, no, we're going to, we're going to do it. And I threw this crazy, which was totally me, right? Like I would be dragging myself in the floor and, just, this was my way. I, the show I not, must go on. The show must go on. The show must go on every single time. So it went on and it went on hard and big and people, you know, slept, 
in every corner of my house. And the next morning, I remember everyone was like leaving and they were like, guys, it's bad out there. And literally it was the morning of the hurricane. And hysterically enough, um, you know, our our house was super affected. We stayed. We decided that we were not going to leave. We decided it was being hyped up to something that it wasn't. And so we actually evacuated in waist high water, street water. Um, we waited until that point. We waited until there was a few inches of water in our house already. And we evacuated. Literally, our puppy was on a raft and we just walked about a mile north and left. And so I'm already on medical leave, right? So I'm already in the dumps. I've already obviously drank and stayed up, you know, till whatever o'clock the night before and partied. And so I'm a mess. And here I am emotionally leaving my already flooding house. The picture perfect house. That's also a huge symbol of your, you know, already oh, achieved. The symbolism success. here is overwhelming. Oh my God. So perfect, you know, mother nature creates the perfect scenario. I'm already sick. You know, my life starts to physically come apart as, as much as it was emotionally already. And I emotionally am pretty much just like cracked open. And so I come back to work, right? So I'm, I'm given some disaster relief time. Um, we are homeless until Christmas, more or less. We, the little, you know, we're able to power one room in our house. And so we're sleeping there for two, three nights, you know, through snowstorms and whatnot, and then leaving because it's, you know, we're being powered by a generator, this one little room. And it, but it really, having that experience of having everything taken away so quickly, I think for me was so necessary because it really offered me a different perspective on the importance of what I was, the things that I was giving the most importance, right? I was sacrificing myself and my body and everything. But at the end of the day, the only thing that was present for every single moment, every single pain, every single decision was my body. Yeah. And it's I know a, that it's the vessel carrying you through. I mean, yeah. And, and that seemed so silly at first, but the realization kept smacking me in the face, which was if you're not physically okay, it doesn't really matter. You can't handle anything. Yeah. And at that point I realized how much I had become a burden. And that to me, someone who took so much pride in their ability and their accomplishments to feel like they had allowed their accomplishments to become a burden because they, I let them go unchecked. That was like a second Sandy, yeah. right? Like I felt like the storm really took the feet out from under me and it really just crumbled my foundation. And so when I came back to work, I, you know, so much had changed while I was gone. Macy's had, had got, undergone a, a restructuring, much like I had undergone a restructuring. <laughs> literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. And so my job wasn't there. They had literally dismantled it, reallocated my responsibilities to different teams. And there was a bigger position than I had left waiting for me when I returned. And I basically returned and they were like, do you want it? I mean, this was like the, the last promotion that I never asked for and literally didn't want, but they, it wasn't really like, yeah. Hey, you can have a smaller position. They were like, Nope. One of our most important buyers just went out on medical leave and you need to fill her shoes. I was like, and oh, this okay. is such a classic case. I think where, it's not just about striving to get promoted and get the bigger job and so on. But sometimes when we're not in the right place and we're offered something that you're just like, oh, I can't, well, I can't turn this down. I mean, 
you know, it's too much money. It's too much prestige. I've worked so hard to get here. I've put in all this time, you know, so much of those outside voices are like, how could you possibly say no to it, even if it's totally and utterly wrong? Right. And so it goes back to the worth of the decision was not, I never looked at myself. Yeah. It was find somebody that'll tell me not to. Because that's what my soul is screaming. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I'm like... And I just, a side note, I'm sorry to stop you. Yeah, I feel like one one sort of piece of advice that I've given to myself um, and to others that I've noticed that this reminds me of is when you're trying to make a decision and you're asking a bunch of people what they think because you're hoping that someone's going to tell you, you always know which answer you hope people will tell you. I mean, you always know what the answer is you're looking for. And that's your answer without even asking people. And and for those of us that are not as intuitive and can't come to that without asking people, it becomes what answer makes you the most uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And so that's like, you know, not, I'm, I'm not trying to put a plug in here, but um, at Mogul, at Mio, Mogul's Infidel plug, Opportunity. Plug away. We're going to get to it. There'll be plenty oh, of plugging. No, no. But like, because <laughs> it's important. One of the biggest things that we talk about is committing to the authentic, you know, forward stumble, which is like committing to following. I don't want to say the path of most resistance because that's absolutely not the case, but not avoiding the emotion, the uncomfortable emotion, right? Committing to being authentic and stumbling and committing to saying, you know what, I I needed to get it wrong in order to prove to myself that I knew that it was right, right? And yeah. and, and and committing to the fact that that voice inside isn't always going to be the loudest, but it's going to be the most important all the time and committing to re re, you know, coming back to that and recommitting to that. But so at this point, I'm guessing, you know, you have, you, you already have this like internal whisper and a voice that Mm -hmm. is telling you what's right or wrong, but then you walk back in and they're like, Hey, we need you to be an even bigger exec. And so. So actually the, the beautiful thing that did happen during quarantine that I, I, I guess I have to quarantine. I called it quarantine. Oh my God. I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> in 2020 okay. <laughs> cause I felt quarantined in my broken home. Yeah, I think that um, was a pretty accidental, a pretty purposeful slip rather. Right. So during that time that I'm on disaster leave, I have a lot of time that I'm, you know, just around supervising the house, trying to figure out how we're going to rebuild doing paperwork and stuff. And so I start taking up stuff. My therapist at the time, who I I go into therapy as soon as Sandy happens, I'm like, okay, this was, you know, I am unraveling. So I know enough about myself to go into therapy. And she suggests that I go into, that I explore the arts. Um, In fact, I eventually switched to an art therapist um, to really help me explore that part of myself. Because remember, you know, in high school, I'm this artist. Once upon a time, I'm this different person who gets sucked into this business world. So all of a sudden the flood takes my foundation away and I'm like, Oh, Hey, what's left art. Hmm. You are when nothing else is there. Uh, and I start taking up painting and I'm, I'm a terrible painter. Just like, let me just side note that. And so I have literally like a dozen canvases of shit that I made in my sad, uh, post Sandy time. But so I come back to work and I, I've got the artist bug now. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I come back, but I come back a little differently and I come back a little less tolerant of a lot of things. And I'm lucky enough to have an associate buyer who's like a a craft bug and she's, she's on my team and, uh, you know, 
her name is Taryn and it's, it's funny. She, she would laugh to hear that, that she influenced me so much, but I used to joke with my last team. I had this stupid line and I don't even know where it came from, but every time I would get mad, I would be like, Hey, watch it. I'll leave. All right. I own a glue gun and I have a propensity <laughs> for glitter. I literally like, what, like who they're like, like it was funny, who threatens but, that? but, but who but, threatens yeah. like owning a glue gun and leaving you know, with their glitter covered life. And, you know, eventually it's what I did, uh, which is hysterical that I would, you know, kind of. It turned out to be your weapon just in a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so I come back very differently, um, but the role is really, really big. And so even though I mentally am not willing to give as much of myself, it requires so much, you know, the, the pressure at that time, it was the time of Michael Kors explosion. And, uh, I was not the Michael Kors buyer, but there was a lot of, I was the handbag buyer, by the way, I was the moderate handbag buyer, uh, for Macy's. And there was a lot of pressure just put on accessories at that time. You know, handbags were really exploding. There was a big shift in the market. And so I was responsible for a lot of big decisions happening also, the explosion of dot com, um, you know, wasn't new to the market, but Macy's was a, a little bit the, of a leader. the rise of e commerce, the rise of e commerce, the shift out of brick and mortar, the massive closing of stores, you know, the the importance of influencers, the rise of the social media influencer, and the you know, the final I think realization on the market's perspective of the importance of millennials. So th- that whole time, that whole shift in the market, I was very much responsible for as far as handbags in, in, in a, in Macy's, one of the largest retailers in the United States of America. Um, so my decisions were very much scrutinized. All of my work was very much under a microscope every single day. And And you're like 27, eight, nine here. I mean, yep. Yep. I'm, I'm like 26, 27 years old. And, you know, I have people, I mean, my team is at, there are times when I am the youngest person on my team. So I'm managing, you know, women in their fifties, women in their forties, women in their thirties, women who have families, women who have been sitting in my, you know, watching people rotate in and out of my chair, you know, being like, I, I know better than you. And here I am largely stumbling right? Like I, I went back and I worked my ass off, but you know, that last, those last couple of years were really hard on me and my body was really, really affected. And so those last few years were my sickest. I was my heaviest weight wise. And I I just want to side note, I don't think that weight is necessarily always equates unhealthiness. I think, I think everybody's body is very different, but for me, I had never been a heavy person, right? That wasn't my normal body makeup. The constitution of my body wasn't, wasn't really like that. And so it was for me, a a warning sign of something bad. And I think my family really, those last two years, my parents had a lot of like sit downs with me and they were like, Hey, something's gotta give. Hey, we're afraid things are not going well. And they absolutely were right. And it was funny because they, they made all of these suggestions and I was so high strung about the fact that even though I agreed with them, I just, again, I kept looking around and saying, how could this be wrong? 
how could all of these choices, how could everything I've earned, how could this position, how all of it, how can that be the wrong thing? How can a six-figure salary with success, I used to say effortless success, who's killing myself? But in my head, I was like, because I can do it, I should do it. And it's funny, my husband says that to me now. He says, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. A hundred percent. And I'll add, just because you're great at something doesn't mean that's what you should be doing. You might be great at a lot of things. Doesn't mean it's the right thing for you. And you know what? Ladies, being capable does not mean doing it all, right? The, the weight yeah. of having to do it all does not come from the ability to do it all. You know, I, I have the ability to do a lot of awful things too. We all have the ability to do a lot of awful yeah, things doesn't too. mean you do them. no. You don't all the right? time anyway. <laughs> why, but, but why are we, di- why are we so able to discern when it comes to things that, that on paper are quote unquote wrong or have been labeled incorrect? It's so easy to discern, oh no, I, I shouldn't do those. But anything, anything else, especially for women, it's, there's like this weird, if I don't, I'm not honoring the sacrifices of like those that came before me. At, at least I... I, I feel like that, you know. Well, I, I really want to get more into this and especially in the context of uh, moguls of infinite opportunity. So let's, I mean, take us through and, and jump with me to when all of this stuff comes together to finally be like, all right, guys, bye. I'm leaving. We'll take a break there. That's it for part one of this episode, but definitely join us next Wednesday for a deeply candid conversation on how from that breaking point, Daphne made life-changing mental, physical, and emotional change and became a creator, entrepreneur, and a generally much happier human being. I had never been taught that my happiness was a responsibility, and I did not learn that until I realized until I taught this little being that his happiness was his responsibility, I was responsible for his happiness. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts, any questions you want answered or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. I'm Nareet Ben. We'll see you next week.